Well, 548 years ago, in the town of Caprizi, Italy, one of the greatest artists that debatably has ever lived was born Michelangelo. He had a lot, a lot longer of an Italian name, but we summarize it with Michelangelo. He was later made more famous by becoming a Ninja Turtle. But before that, uh, he is, is maybe most well-known for painting the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel, which for centuries has been admired by thousands. My neck was sore for several days as Claudia and I visited there, and just you know, you're just looking up for about 40 minutes. My hand was also sore because it got slapped by an old Italian grandma for talking in the sacred chapel. She scolded me for pointing out Daniel to uh, Claudia. But he did not consider the, the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel his greatest achievement. In fact, he called it a waste of his time. Uh, what he considered to be his greatest achievement is what many consider to be maybe the greatest artwork ever made is the statue of David. The statue of David. Art historian Giorgio Vasari said this, without any doubt, this figure, statue of David, has put in the shade every other statue, ancient or modern, Greek or Roman. To be sure, anyone who has seen Michelangelo's David has no need to see anything else by any other sculptor, living or dead. So many consider this to be the pinnacle of art, the pin pinnacle of beauty made by human hands. He finished it in 1504, and it's been admired uh, for centuries by thousands upon thousands. And just a couple decades ago, in 1991, uh, just on a random day, there was a, a man that showed up who was, wanted to just cause some ruckus, and he jumped the rope lines in the museum and took a hammer and began chipping away at one of the statue of David's left feet. He actually chipped a toe, and he got pretty far until he was uh, tackled, wrestled to the ground, not by police, not by museum security, but actually just by fellow museum goers. Now, why in the world am I starting uh, a sermon with an art history lesson that many of you are like, is this, is this a foretaste of what we're going to get for the next hour? I, I, I'm starting this way because I'm just very, very curious. What causes random museum goers to tackle this vandal? The statue of David is not theirs. Their property is not being damaged. So what causes just people who are there to see some art, to see a man violently hitting a statue with a hammer, what causes them to jump the rope line and not just say, hey, sir, could you please stop? I like looking at this. Could you stop it? But to tackle him, to force him to the ground, to force him to stop. And I think the answer is, deep in the human heart is a strong wiring to behold beauty. I think the human heart is wired for worship. And even when we get an echo of the true beauty that we were made for in the statue of David, there's something about us that when we see it violently attacked, we must act. There's something inside us that fuels us to stop the destruction of beauty. And when we look at Jesus teaching these two parables today. He's not just going to point us to some sort of beauty. He's going to point us to the greatest beauty, the greatest treasure, the ultimate beauty that you and I were made for, a treasure that makes the statue of David look like a kindergartner's clay project. And we'll see as he opens up this treasure for us what finding this treasure is meant to drive us 
to do. What beholding this beauty is meant to compel us to do, how we're meant to live as a result of seeing this treasure. So we'll look at these two parables. They both have the same meaning. They're both illuminating the same picture, if you will. We'll look at these two, and then after we walk through them, I'll draw out what is the meaning that these men in these parables are teaching us, that Jesus is trying to show us as we look at these parables. So let's look at the first. Look at verse 44. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. So remember, we're in Matthew 13 where Jesus is telling parables. Parables aren't just fun stories. They're meant to uh, reveal the hiddenness of the kingdom. They're meant to enlighten the stained glass window, if you will, of the kingdom. And so that's what Jesus is doing here. And he first tells a story of a man who kind of stumbles on this treasure in a field. So in Jesus' day, when they don't have uh, really places to secure your valuables, they don't have banks to put your money in, they'd have to get kind of creative. And so some people, if you live near a cave, what they do is you put your valuables in a clay pot, maybe hide it in a cave, or if there were no caves around, you would just bury it in the ground. So the, the famous parable that we'll eventually get to in Matthew 25 of there's a master who had three servants and he gives one 10 talents, one five, and one servant, he gives one talent. And the one who has 10 goes and makes more. The one who has five goes and makes more. And then what does the guy with one do? Buries it in the ground. Now, is he just being weird? <laughs> like, why does he do that? He thinks, I'll just make sure I'm not, I'm not really worried about making more. I'll just make sure I, I keep this one intact, right? He's burying it in the ground for safety. That's what they would do in Jesus' day, trying to protect it. So if invading armies were coming in and you know, how do I prevent myself from getting kind of plundered? I'll bury my valuables in the ground or if you want to keep them safe from thieves or maybe you were going to go on a long journey, you'd put your valuables, bury them in the ground and then sometimes invading armies do come and they kill you or you go on a journey and you don't come back and your valuables stay buried, stay hidden for generations. And that's kind of what's happened here in this parable. There's a man walking through a field and kind of accidentally stumbles on, accidentally discovers treasure that's been hidden, not in his field. He's maybe working for a master who owns the field or maybe he's just passing by, but he discovers this treasure. And what is his response? to discovering this treasure. The first thing he does is he covers it back up. He covers it back up. He re-hides it. It's the same Greek word for a treasure hidden in the field. He re-hides it, which a lot of interpreters of this parable, that's kind of made them uncomfortable. His actions look maybe, uh, maybe a little sketchy. Is he hiding it? If it is uh, a field owned by his master, is he hiding it from his master? Is he maybe being dishonest or greedy? What's, what's going on here? And here's where we, we hit an important lesson for how we are meant to interpret parables. How we are meant to interpret parables. I had a professor who would say, the most important thing about interpreting parables is to know when to stop interpreting to know when to stop interpreting. So parables usually have one main point. Not every little thing in every little parable is meant to mean something else. Parables are a story that are usually making one point. So again, take that, the parable of the talents. Man with the 10, man with the five, man with the one. So the master who gives the talents in that story is a bit severe. He's a bit dishonest. He's a little sketchy. 
And so is Jesus in telling that parable saying God is severe, dishonest, and sketchy? No, that's not the point of the parable. The point of the parable is be faithful with what you're given as a good steward. Right? Not every little thing in the parable is meant to mean something else. And so similarly here, this man's kind of ethical behavior, maybe a little dodgy, maybe a little sketchy, uh, isn't the main point. The point is when you find the treasure of the kingdom, do whatever it takes to get it. Do whatever it takes to get it in your possession. That's exactly what he does. So he finds it, he rehides it, and then he goes and he sells everything that he owns so that he can buy the field where the treasure is. He doesn't sell most of what he owns. He doesn't just sell his inheritance. He doesn't just sell his savings. He sells everything. He puts his house on the market. He puts his car on Craigslist. He drains his bank account. He puts all of his clothes on Facebook Marketplace, right? Every possible way that you can sell stuff, he does. He liquidates absolutely everything so that he can buy the field and have the treasure which is an unbelievably foolish thing to do unless the worth of the treasure infinitely outshines everything else. It is very dumb to sell all that you have unless the value of what you're getting dwindles everything else the world could possibly offer you, which is what's happening here. So he goes and he buys the field. You might think, why doesn't he just take the treasure. Uh, most think, well, if it's not his field and he just takes the treasure and runs off, maybe the actual rightful owner of the field will hear about it and then somehow he'll say, well, that's, that's actually rightfully my treasure. So this guy is buying the field to make sure this treasure can never be taken away from me. It's rightfully mine and no one can ever take it away from me. So he buys the, buys the whole field, but that's not all. There's one more very, very, very important thing for you to see. What is the fuel for his actions? What is it that when he finds this treasure is driving him to sell everything that he has in order that he might buy the treasure? It's joy in the treasure. In his joy, he goes and sells everything that he has. Notice, selling all his possessions is not a sad occasion it's not even a bittersweet occasion. It's a joyful occasion. When we buy a house, that's a great monumental moment, right? We're very happy we've got our first house or maybe a, a nicer house that will accommodate our needs because now we have a bunch of kids or whatever. But, so it's a very happy occasion, but let's be honest, it's a little bittersweet. Why? Because if you live in McKinney, you just spent $1.7 billion on a three-bedroom, Right? So you're happy, but you're like gut punch happy. You're like, this is sweet. And if we're in a tight spot, we can sell this again and become trillionaires, right? So you're happy, but it's mixed with this like, mm, I got to work really hard because we have no money anymore, right? That is not what is happening here. All that this man has lost is almost an afterthought. It's almost not even acknowledged because of the joy in what he is Gaining, Selling everything is not a hardship to this man. It's a delight. If you want to say it this way, the joy dwindles the pain because the treasure infinitely dwindles everything else that he could possibly have. So that's the first parable. Let's look at the second one, verse 45. So it's a man walking through the field, finding a treasure. 
Let's look at the second, a merchant searching for pearls. Verse 45, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls who, on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. So again, Jesus filling in the colors of the picture here. What is the kingdom like? He's told the story of the man walking through the field. Now he's going to tell a story of a merchant on this intense search, an intense search for fine pearls. Merchants, you know, we're familiar with merchants, but they would travel throughout the ancient day looking for riches that they would get and they would sell and they would accumulate wealth, right? They would find something of great value and then they would sell it to people who buys things of great value and they would make Money off it, they'd go all over the world, great distances to do this. And this merchant is hunting specifically fine pearls, plural. He's looking for a lot of them so that he might sell them. Why? So that he can make a great fortune. Pearls in that day, similar to today, but today we can make nice fakes. So the value in our minds kind of goes down. But in the ancient days, there's, you know, you can't make nice fakes. They're very rare they were kind of the height of wealth. It displayed great wealth. Sometimes kings and queens would put pearls in their crowns or maybe on the gates of royalty. What do we call the gates of heaven? The pearly gates, right? When I get to the pearly gates and I see St. Peter or whatever, depending on your background, uh, right? That's what pearls are. So this man's on search for uh, fine pearls, looking for a lot of them. And then on his search, he finds one. And he finds one of great value, one that seems to just absolutely captivate him. He, he finds, if you will, a priceless pearl, a peerless pearl, as Richard Sibbs would say. And when he finds that one pearl, how does he respond? Does he just throw it in his bag and say, okay, one down, several hundred to go? Does he say, okay, good, let me just continue on my search. No, he says, I'm done searching. And notice, instead of selling the pearl to gain a fortune, he sells his fortune to gain the pearl. He not only abandons his quest, he abandons his livelihood, in a sense. This pearl could make me very rich, but instead I'm going to impoverish myself in order that I might have this one pearl. Why? Why does his motivation shift from, ooh, now I can be rich? Because he has found the treasure that outshines all riches put together. That's what's happening here. So we have two men and two different parables, one a merchant, one a man walking through a field. They find the treasure. It compels them to sell everything they have so that they can have this treasure. All the while, their hearts are overflowing with joy. So what can they teach us? What is Jesus trying to teach us through these two parables? I've got four things for us to look at. The longing, the finding, the selling, and the rejoicing. The longing, the finding, the selling, and the rejoicing. First, the longing. Notice, both of these men have deep in their heart this longing for treasure, the merchant, it's more obvious, he's on a search for it. But notice the man in the field, though he's maybe innocently just walking through a field, the second he sees the treasure, his heart is set on fire with the reality that this is what my life is meant for. 
This is the treasure that I have been searching for. This is what I must have in order to have my life mean something. They both, though one is more explicitly searching, even when the one who isn't maybe searching, when he discovers it, both their hearts display this longing for treasure, this longing for satisfaction in something. And that is something, that is a human being reality that is true of every breathing human in this room and every human being that has ever existed. We have deep woven into our souls a longing for glory or for beauty, a longing to be satisfied with treasure. You were made to worship something or someone. You were made to have someone as the ultimate object of your affections. You cannot escape that reality, try as you might. When the statue of David is attacked, you will jump the ropes. That is how our hearts are wired. We long for a treasure to be the object of our affections. Why is it that when you see art or you hear poetry or you look at a mountain range or a a meadow of flowers or you read a good novel, why is it that you'll just weep sometimes and you don't know why? Why is it that you have all of a sudden this kind of awakening, this longing for more? Almost like there's another world out there that I'm made for. Nothing here seems to be satisfying. And when I look at beauty, whether it's a mountain range or art, I all of a sudden have this awakened longing that satisfaction is further on. And you might be thinking right now, well, you know, I'm not an artsy person. Okay, whatever. The Super Bowl. Right, you have sports or someone's you know, telling you a story of storming the beaches of Normandy, something that you find beautiful, something that makes your mouth drop, something that is otherworldly that awakens in you this longing that isn't quite satisfied by the painting or by the Super Bowl, but it is pointing to something greater, even if you don't know what it is. And C.S. Lewis probed this, his whole journey of life, he would say, is this searching for longing. And he would say, we get these, what he called, stabs of joy that awaken in us this need for satisfaction that's actually not found here. In fact, what we find here is just the scent of a flower that we haven't found or the echo of a tune we have not heard or news from a country that we have never visited. And he said, what we typically do, which is our fatal mistake, is rather than seeing them as arrows to something else or someone else, we try to find our satisfaction in the scent or in the echo. We try to find our satisfaction in the things here. And when we do that, they turn into idols, they break our hearts, and they leave us empty. When you try to find your identity or your hope or your ultimate satisfaction in things here, when you were made for a greater treasure, you will be left empty. And here's the tragedy of the human race. That's all we do. That's all we've been doing since Genesis 3, biting the fruit, thinking it's going to satisfy us when it just leaves us naked and ashamed. Searching for our satisfaction in lesser things. And here's, here's just, we live in the greatest case study day ever. 
We live in the day of instant gratification and we have the means today to get things to satisfy us better than any other age in history. I want something, looking at a picture of it on my phone, I press a button and it shows up sometimes the same day in an Amazon package. It's kind of freaky, right, how quickly they get it here. I don't have to wait for things that I want. And let me just ask you, is that working for us? Are we the most satisfied age of all time? Are we the most joy-filled generation of all time? Or are we the most miserable? Let me ask you a very important theological question. Does Michael Jordan look happy to you? I mean, like today, does he look happy? Does the Friends cast look happy to you today? Or do they really, 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 really look like they want to live two decades ago? And do they look kind of miserable now? Do all the great actors and actresses that star in these Hollywood love films, are their marriages just beacons of joy and happiness? Or is it actually the exact opposite? And unless you think I'm just picking on the celebrities, we do the exact same thing. How often do you think, if I just got that promotion, everything would be okay? Or once we get out of this tough season, everything will be okay. Or once I get my kids into a good, good situation, everything will be okay. We'll just finally be able to relax. Or once this person gets elected, everything will be okay, right? Everything will just kind of fall into place, trusting other things to ultimately satisfy us, putting our hope in things here. And despite it constantly giving us the results of emptiness, we try over and over and over and over again. Every year, there's a new bestseller to 10 Ways to Happiness. How to get rich quick or no, now it's actually you need to be a minimalist, right? Get rid of everything and be in nature and connect. And that's how you actually become satisfied. Well, no, actually have a a bigger house, right? That'll do it. Pour your life into your kids, right? That'll really cause meaning. Actually, no, pour your life into yourself and self-discovery, be you. That'll actually do it. And every single one of those paths lead to the same barren land. Yet we keep trying over and over and over again, and and here's the irony, the tragic irony. We search for satisfaction everywhere except the one place it can be found. We look everywhere except the treasure hidden in the field, except the pearl. And let me just tell you the answer, you were made for one pearl. And everything else is going to leave you naked and ashamed. It's going to leave you hungry and thirsty. It's going to leave you empty when you go after the scent rather than the flower. Or when you try to locate your satisfaction in the echo rather than the tune. But notice with these men, these longing men, they find the flower, right? They find the pearl. They find the treasure. They find the kingdom. Now, don't make the mistake with all this kind of kingdom of God talk. It's the theme of Matthew that we've talked about over and over again. Don't make the mistake of just thinking the kingdom of God is about better circumstances in a better place. It hurts here. It won't hurt there. I'm miserable here. I won't be miserable there. That is true. And that is an occasion for joy, but that is not our ultimate satisfaction. These men's satisfaction, what is satisfying their longing is not a place. It's a person. 
It's not that they've found the place of the kingdom. Their true satisfaction is they've found the king of the kingdom. They found the one whose light brightens up the streets of gold. The one who one glimpse at his beauty is worth more, is more satisfying than all the beauty of all the universe combined. And that is what is meeting this longing that they've had. The kingdom of God is materially satisfying, if you want to say, say it that way. The revelation is filled with the beauty of the walls of the kingdom and the gates of the kingdom and the splendor of the tree of life being there and the river of life that flows through the nations and heals everything. But you were not primarily made for material satisfaction. You were primarily made for relational satisfaction, relational joy. You can be in the greatest house ever built by yourself and be absolutely miserable. And you can be in a slum with the love of your life and be happy. Uncomfortable, but happy. The kingdom, in the kingdom, you won't just have this material joy, though you will, but that's not it. You will have the relational joys of knowing the Father, of communing eternally with the Son and the Spirit. What does Jesus say in John 17 as he prays to the Father before he goes to the cross? This is eternal life that they may know you the one true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Father, I pray that they may be where I am and see my glory because you love me before the foundation of the world. Is Jesus just praying for better circumstances in a better place? No, he's praying that they might be with him and gaze at his glory for all of eternity. That is what is satisfying the longing of these men and that is what satisfies our heart longings because we were designed for him. We were designed to be satisfied in him. And when you find him, like these men, when you find the one who sculpted the Alps, when you find the one who carved out the Grand Canyon, like these men, you will say, here's the one I was made for. I'll sell everything else because nothing else matters anymore. I found the place where all the beauty comes from. I haven't just heard an echo. I've found the tune. I've, I've found the flower. I've found beauty himself. He's the only treasure that doesn't leave you barren, doesn't leave you empty. St. Augustine, who was an early church father, his whole life was kind of this search for satisfaction. What will satisfy this heart longing? And he searches just about everywhere. And then finally comes to God and finds God. And then he wrote uh, one, of his most, one of the most famous books in church history, The Confessions, which is like an autobiographical prayer where he retells his life story. He says this about his life. What does ambition seek except honor and glory? But only you, Lord, have a glory forever that can never be lost. What does the power of the mighty desire except to be feared? But none has power that can never be seized or stolen but you. What do the lonely and the anxious long for except a love they cannot lose? But who can give a love that does not fade and die but you? What does weariness seek except rest? But what sure rest is there apart from you? Thus the soul commits adultery when it turns from you and seeks these things that it cannot find except in you. Oh, Lord, you made us for yourself. 
then our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. So here he is. He's showing you the one your heart was made for, the, the treasure your heart, your heart's satisfaction was designed for. Notice Jesus here isn't throwing you a map and saying, here's just a quicker way. Start your search. I'm, I'm helping you out. He doesn't throw you a metal detector. He says, here I am. Here is the treasure. And so the question we need to ask ourselves, you need to ask yourself is, will you leave the field and keep looking? Will you leave the pearl and keep looking and search elsewhere for your satisfaction? Or will you sell everything to get this treasure? Both of these men, when they find the treasure and they find the pearl, they immediately have one mission in life. Everything else has faded away. And that one mission is do whatever it takes to get this treasure, even if it means selling everything I have. See the wholehearted response here. Jesus will not join other treasures on your top shelf. He will not be your favorite of many treasures. He will not be someone you just like. He will be king of your life or he will be nothing. He will be your supreme treasure or he will be nothing. Sell all that you have for this pearl or throw it back into the ocean. Crown him or kill him but you can't just like him. He will not be one of many, and these men choose that he will be everything to them. Now, notice here, the key to understanding these men's actions and our response to the gospel is this idea of worth, the idea of value. The man in the field has everything I've ever had or this treasure. Which one is worth more to me? The merchant says, everything I ever have and all the pearls in all the world or this pearl, which one is worth more to me? And both of them say, this treasure and this pearl infinitely outweigh the worth of everything else. And that's the same question for us. What is worth more? We make worth-based decisions every single day. We do this, though it might be hard or though it might take a great sacrifice. Why? Because it's worth it. Right? You sacrifice all the time for your spouse and your kids. You'll sacrifice time or money or comfort. Why? Because it's worth it. You get a good job opportunity elsewhere. You will sacrifice your community and a lot of close relationships and move for that other job. Why? Because you think it is worth it. We operate like this all the time. And here these men say, I've found the one of infinite worth. I've found the priceless pearl and his worth eclipses all others. Better is a day in your court, my God, than a thousand elsewhere, is the cry of these men's heart. Paul, similarly, when he writes his letter to the Philippians, Paul's reflecting on his past life uh, and kind of how he gained about everything there is to be gained, right? He was high and mighty. Then he meets Jesus and they go on the scales Jesus, or being the Pharisee of Pharisees, the Hebrew of Hebrews, gaining all that there is to be gained in my circles. And how does he balance them out? Philippians 3. But whatever, I, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss. Why? 
because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ and be found in him. Why, Paul, would you lose the riches that you had and the reputation that you had, the the fame and the life that you had? Why, even on top of that, would you go through incredible suffering? You wouldn't just lay down your reputation. You would be mocked and beaten and constantly getting death threats and eventually die. Why would you do that, Paul? Because of the infinitely greater worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. It's not a hard decision when you encounter this treasure. It's not hard for either of these men. It's not hard for Paul. Gaining him infinitely outweighs everything else. And so again, you're in the field right now. You've stumbled on the treasure. How does he look when you put him on the scales? Where do you place his worth? Is he one of many? I like him. Who doesn't like Jesus, right? Eternal life, not hell forever. That's great, right? Who doesn't like him? Is he one of many? Have you sold everything in order that you might gain him? Have you counted everything lost in order that you might be found in him, in order that you might know him? And the way you can tell the answer to that question is our last point. Is he the object of your affections? Is he the target of your joy? Charles Spurgeon, the Baptist preacher, says, whatever your greatest joy and treasure, that is your God. What you settle on as here's where I find my satisfaction, here's where I find my identity and hope and rest and joy, that thing is your God. You want to see how he's doing on the scales? Ask yourself, what is the object of my affections? What is the object of my joy? What is the fuel that drives me to live the way that I live? And the men in these parables, it's joy in the treasure. In his joy, he went and sold all that he had and bought the field. The Christian life, the life of communion with Jesus is a life of joy. You were made to glorify him. You were made to worship him. How do you do that? You treasure him. You set your affections. You love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. As I heard one pastor say, the essence of praising him is prizing him. He's the object of my affections. Christianity is not a set of beliefs, just truth and then nothing else. Right? James says that's what the demons have. The demons know all the true things about God. Right? It's not just belief in truth. It's not denying all the fun stuff here, but at least we get heaven at the end of the day. Christianity is not lay down all possible happiness, right? all pleasures here, but at least we won't burn for eternity. Rather, the opposite. Christianity is pursuing with all your might joy, pleasure, satisfaction in him, the one you were actually made for. In your presence, O God, Psalm 16 says, there is 
fullness of joy, not just a lot of joy, not just some here and some over there, but you've got the most of it. Fullness of joy is found in him, in his presence. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Doesn't mean obey God and he'll give you a bunch of fun stuff. It means when you see that you are wired to delight in him, he will give you himself. He will send you his son. He'll give you the desires of your heart because he is the desires of your heart. I've said it before, I'll say it again. Jesus is not inviting you to eat your vegetables. He's not saying, I know it stinks, we've got to not cuss, but hell's way worse, right? So just believe in me and the atheists will get mad, but you just endure that for a while and then you'll get a mansion, right? You can fly or whatever else you, know, you can do in eternity. He is saying, I am beauty himself. I am the fountain of all joy and I've come that you might not just have a good life, but you might have life itself in me. Christianity is about pursuing ultimate joy that is only found in him. So how does he do on the scales? Ask yourself, is that what my heart is after? Is he what my heart is after? Is he my treasure? Is he the object of my greatest delight? And just so you know, as you're working that out, the biggest threat to that the biggest threat to your joy in him is almost certainly in our day and age not going to be becoming an atheist. It's not going to be a political party or wokeism that's going to make you, it's going to steal your joy in Christ. What's going to steal your joy in Christ is the continual pursuit of lesser treasures. A continual pursuit of false treasures, finding false empty satisfaction in lesser things. C.S. Lewis, one of my favorite quotes you've heard before, says this, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of reward promised in the Gospels, the treasure of the Gospel, if we really sat there and thought about it and saw it for what it is, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. God wouldn't look at you and say, oh, you're too passionate for all these sinful things. He would say, you're, you're not passionate enough. We are half-hearted creatures fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. Like, ignorant, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. Is your life, is your weeks, is your day, is today filled with mud pies? Lesser satisfactions that will leave you empty. Might be good things, accomplishments at work, others telling you you did a good job, something that makes you feel good but will fade by the morning and you'll become ravenous for more and all of a sudden you've built an idol that's just gonna break your heart? Is your day filled with mud pies or have you seen you've been invited to the holiday at the sea? Have you seen you found the priceless pearl? Look at me, sell all you have someone infinitely more beautiful than the statue of David is here. 
with his arms open to you and saying, I'm yours. Sell all you have and have me. Know me, gain me. John Owen, in talking about this, says, the more I see the glory of Christ, the more the painted beauties of this world will wither in my eyes and I will be more and more crucified to this world. It will become to me like something dread and putrid, impossible for me to enjoy. You want to be done with porn? Don't just white knuckle it and try to just focus on the sin and beat the sin. Focus on the beauty of Jesus and let it dwindle. You want to finally hate sin the way you were meant to? Gaze at his wonderful face. See the treasure that he is that has been presented to you and you will begin to grow in your distaste of anything that is not the bread of life. That doesn't quench your thirst like the living water. And perhaps the greatest beauty of all this, as we've talked about this God of all beauty, as we close, the most amazing thing is the way you accept the invitation to the holiday at the sea, the way you actually treasure the pearl isn't through your own efforts. The gospel is not primarily about your pursuit of God as your treasure. The gospel is primarily about God's pursuit of you as his treasure. You were made for the garden paradise with him. And from the garden, we've continually trusted in the fruit. And it has left us naked and ashamed. We've been eating the fruit ever since. The story of the Bible, the story of the Old Testament, is man pursuing lesser treasures for their satisfaction and being left empty. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved you, because he saw you and treasured you and chose you, sent his Son, who comes and doesn't just give another law. He says, I'm the bread of life who can actually satisfy your hunger. I'm the living water that can actually quench your thirst. And he teaches in parables and he will eventually go to the cross. And on the cross, in the height of his agony, he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What's happening there? Is he just really overwhelmed with the nail pain or the crown of thorns pain? Or has the Father and the Son, who have been eternally loving one another with perfect love, there's never been a love like that that the Father has for his Son or the Son has for his Father. Take all of our loves for our children times a trillion, and it doesn't begin to sniff Jesus' love for his Father or the Father's for the Son. But on the cross, as he cries out, as he is forsaken we see the son giving up his treasure. We see the father giving up his treasure in order to buy you. We see the son selling all that he has in order to buy you with his blood. And what does Hebrews 12 say is his motivation as he goes to the cross? What's the fuel in the heart of our savior as he goes to the cross to sell everything, to buy you as his treasure? Joy. For the joy set before him, he goes to the cross. The only reason you can find the kingdom is because the king has found you.
the only reason you can sell all you have for the pearl is because he sold all he had for you. The only reason you can have him as your treasure is because before the father said, let there be light, he looked at you and he chose you as his treasure. We have a wonderful savior who has been revealed to you in the gospel. Here he is. See his infinite worth. See his greater beauty. Sell all that you have in your joy and find him and have him. Let's pray. Father, you are wonderful to reveal yourself to us, to reveal the gospel in your son. And I just pray that we would respond in faith by your spirit's power. Whether we've never trusted in your son, may we today sell all that we have and gain the treasure. Or we've sold all we have a while ago, but we are just in the horrible habit of playing with mud pies and satisfying ourselves with lesser treasures. I pray that we would gaze at the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of your wonderful son and be done with these lesser things. I pray that our hearts might be filled with joy as we abide in him, as we have our treasure, that all other rivals fade away and are exposed for the pathetic satisfactions that they are, the emptiness that they bring. And I pray that we might genuinely begin to taste and see that the Lord is good. That we might say with hearts full of joy, one thing do we ask of you, O God, that we might dwell in your house all the days of our life and gaze upon your beauty and inquire in your temple. That's why you saved us. That's what eternity will be. Praising your wonderful son for infinity because you are infinitely worthy. Open our eyes in faith to see that now and stir in our hearts, stir our affections for him. We pray in his name, amen.